Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today we're here at the ASCO annual meeting and I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Clossy. Thank you so much for coming on today. Ah, oh, you're welcome. It's great to Would you like to introduce yourself and share what your research focuses on? Sure. Sure. I'm a um, neuro-oncologist. I work at UCLA. I'm the director of the neuro-oncology program and uh, really my research focuses on primary brain tumors and predominantly gliomas. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, so you're the senior author of the Indigo study, which is being presented here, uh, voracitinib for residual grade 2 glioma with an IDH1-2 mutation. Would you like to give some background about the trial? Yeah, you know, uh, first, um, it was really not that long ago that we even knew that IDH mutations existed. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2008, uh, there was a study that was done that looked at a bunch of gliomas, and this is, uh, they did kind of a genome-wide eval evaluation, and they found that there were these IDH mutations that were present. And so digging in a little deeper, uh, one thing that they found is that the location of the mutation was always on the same codon. Mm -hmm. uh, there could be different substitutions of amino acids. Um, different for IDH1 versus IDH2, the codon, but still consistent throughout. Mm. It was then later found that um, this mutation causes a change in the way that uh, we metabolize uh, glucose through the Krebs cycle. Mm -hmm. So there's two alleles. One allele is wild type, the other one is mutated. And so the first allele uh, takes isocitrate and metabolizes it to alpha-ketoglutarate, and the second one, now the mutated form, takes alpha-ketoglutarate and metabolizes it into 2-hydroxyglutarate. 2-hydroxyglutarate uh, ends up just accumulating in the cell because we don't have a way to metabolize it. And by doing that, it causes changes in the um, way that the genes, uh, the epigenetic features of the, of the genes uh, are. And so uh, that leads to kind of uh, decrease in differentiation and kind of is a precursor to tumors forming. It turns out, as you know, then that when we go and we look, we see that these tumors that are IDH mutated are predominantly in low-grade tumors or lower-grade tumors, not the most aggressive type uh, glioblastoma. And as a matter of fact, as we go through this entire process, we find out that the IDH mutation is kind of disease-defining, like it really helped us understand what the different tumor subtypes were. And these tumor subtypes had different prognosis, so it was like all the things that you'd want to look for for identifying unique tumor types. So um, with that, you know, all of the treatments to date for these types of tumors were shown that if you give radiation and you add chemotherapy, that patients live longer compared to just giving radiation alone. But there's also, um, you know, some of these were even lower grade, like grade two. And in that setting, there was the opportunity that was found that you could just watch the tumor for a period of time before radiating. And the reason that people wanted to consider doing that was because radiation and chemotherapy could, could damage the normal brain over time and cause cognitive changes. And those cognitive changes could manifest themselves in a way that patients wouldn't be able to function, may not be independent, may not be able to be employed. And the population that gets this disease ends up being kind of in their 30s and 40s, so it's really people in the prime of their lives. So that's, that's the baseline for this, this tumor and the mutations of it. Great, thank you. That was a really great overview of it. Um, so what has the efficacy of voracidinib been in this population so far? Yeah, so then uh, the idea was, um, okay, if th these um, mutations seem to be so important, why don't we then try to target them? And that's where the inhibitors were developed. 
and voracitinib is one of them. And one of the important things, there's IDH1 and IDH2 mutations that occur. And so voracitinib was made to, to inhibit ID, mutant IDH1 and mutant IDH2. So as I was going through that Krebs cycle discussion, the idea is to block the formation of 2-HG. And that would then hopefully cause some changes. Either it would take longer for the cell to divide, maybe the cells would die, and there would be some ability to see some effect. Um, in the phase one studies, it was kind of looked across the board. Grade one, grade two, three, four, oligodendroglioma, astrocytoma. And uh, it was a little hard to see if there was a signal coming out, but eventually it was clear that there was tumor shrinkage occurring in the populations that had non-enhancing tumor. Mm -hmm. First time I'm talking about non-enhancing tumor, but this is a tumor that's usually slower growing, whereas enhancing tumor means that there's new blood vessels, tumors growing fast. We didn't quite see anything there, but we saw it in this earlier stage. Um, so it made sense to think about, you know, how are we now going to define a potential opportunity to see clinical benefit. Right. And that's where um, using it as early as possible in the disease kind of made sense. And I told you about this watchful waiting time frame. And watchful waiting is where, again, we just monitor the patients and when the tumor gets to a certain size, we start radiation. Mm -hmm. So if we could use it during this time, prevent the tumors from growing, maybe even shrink them, maybe prevent uh, and prolong the time before one would need radiation, or even decrease the opportunity for malignant transformation that can occur from the chemotherapies because of DNA damage and mutations that have formed, there would be a potential benefit. But it would be really important to make sure that there wasn't toxicities associated with it if you're gonna have patients on this therapy who are young for this long period of time. And it turned out that um, these IDH inhibitors that were, that were developed, boracitinib in particular, has very few side effects. People really are going about their, their lives in a normal way without interruptions of any major source. So it's, it's um, I think that kind of set it all up for, okay, this makes sense to study this population where no one's had any other treatment than surgery. There's some residual tumor there and we could just try to prolong the time till they need some other intervention. And uh, we also are able to actually measure to see if the tumor got to a certain size that we kind of arbitrarily call progression mm -hmm. when it reaches that threshold. So it was a study with the, the primary endpoint would be progression-free survival. How long compare, and it's a randomized study, mm -hmm. so two arms, one uh, gets the drug, the other one gets a placebo. Nobody knows, it's double blind, there's no biases anywhere. And they just evaluated two things. How long did it take until the tumor reached a 25% increase in the bidirectional area? And the second thing was, how long did it take for um, the patients to start another therapy? Mm -hmm. So those were, that's kind of how it was developed and that was, those were the endpoints that were chosen. Awesome. It's a really exciting new uh, avenue of treatment. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's an it's a uh, it's it's kind of like a new indication for a therapy. Right. Nothing that ever has been used before. Yeah, yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. So, what are some of the results that are being presented here at ASCO this week? So, the, so the um, I mean, first, it's it's a great opportunity to understand toxicity mm -hmm. and side effects, and nicely you have a control group to kind of understand what are real effects from the therapy and what is just present in the disease. And there's very limited effects. I mean, one of them is that some of the liver enzymes uh, could increase, but very few people had to come off study 
uh, or lower their dose or anything in this setting. So that part was great, it, you know, confirm that. The second thing that was great, um, so you know these studies are set up to have different interim looks. Mm -hmm. So they start the study and maybe they would look initially and say, is it futile? Should we even continue the study? That would be the first look. And then the second look would be, should we, um, uh, are we seeing some obvious benefit that's happening? Should we just continue or should we stop the study because there's enough here? And when the Data Safety Monitoring Board evaluated in the, in the second interim, the first time that they were looking for efficacy, they said this is a big effect, mm -hmm. we're stopping. We're even saying that the people who are on placebo should be uh, wow. put on study drug. Wow. And so there was a you know, clear prolongation of progression-free survival compared, uh, when comparing the two groups. Um, the, the data uh, at this point show that the um, progression-free survival for the uh, placebo group was 11 months and 27 months for the treatment group. Mm -hmm. So that's a good prolongation and I, uh, you know, I think at this point um, though there was only 28% uh, of the patients that were actually off study drug and progressed in the treatment arm. Right. So there's still 78% of the patients where data is still going to come out and those data might change somewhat because there's a lot mm -hmm. of censoring that occurs in these data. So that looks very promising. So I think we're going to learn a lot more about you know populations that get a real long benefit from this therapy, holding off on, on uh, you know next treatment interventions. I said that there was a second endpoint that was a time to the next treatment intervention. And that was even a greater difference. There was a very small percentage of patients um, in the treatment arm that went on to a second intervention. Whereas in the placebo arm, they more rapidly, you know, one, they were able to cross over so they could get the study drug when they were able to. So all of that points to a very positive outcome. Uh, it it um, validates that this is a good you know, tumor uh, uh, target to go after. The drug being created specifically for brain cancer was great. And you know, we, we don't get a lot of opportunities for positive results in brain cancer. Blood-brain barrier, uh, uh, is this the right target? All these things that come up. This was really a great um, clinical, or, or a, a great, um, uh, clinical development path mm -hmm. that was very clear in the end that it, had, it was going to have a high likelihood of benefit. And so for us, I think in our field, it's just been really great to see something come out positive for our patients. Yeah. Um, anything else about either the Indigo trial or about other glioma research here that you'd like to mention? I think we need to follow this paradigm that was created in the way that this study was, was and not this study, but the way that the clinical development path went. Uh, the opportunity to uh, make drugs that are specific for the disease, which doesn't happen a lot in brain tumors, and then the ability to study it and show the benefits. And there was even, you know, some of these unique approaches like, um, we call them perioperative or window of opportunity, where you could give drug for a period of time, take the tumor out, and then look to see if you've affected kind of the biology of the tumor. Did 2-HG drop down? Did all these things occur that we would like to see? And that just gives you, again, more confidence. It's doing what we think it's doing. We're seeing some imaging changes. This has a high likelihood of success. We just need to kind of rinse and repeat for other types of brain tumors and hope that that can happen. Absolutely. Well, this is really exciting to hear about. So thank you so much for stopping by to talk about it. You're welcome. It's my pleasure.